Um, as most of you know, for the last several weeks, we've been in a series we've been calling um, Getting Ready for the End of the World, and um, All Good Things Must End. This is the last week of our series, and I'm a little disappointed by that. However, it will be a, uh, a great end, I think, uh, going to communion. Now, um, in this series, one of the things that we've tried to kind of stay away from is really getting into the deep, you know, nitty-gritty details of what's going to happen in, you know, the end of days. We really wanted to spend our time focused kind of in a different direction in this series, and that is that one day, um, the end of the world is actually going to happen. It's going to happen. One day, Jesus is going to return, and he's going to come back as king, and he's going to make all things new again. We believe that that thing is going, that one day is going to happen, you know, sometime in the future. And if we truly believe that this is true, it will affect everything that we do today. All the aims of our lives today should be influenced by that very belief. Now, a lot of us will say, you know, I believe that one day Jesus is going to return. I believe that. And he's going to make all things new. I believe that. But if our lives do not necessarily, uh, you know, like make themselves kind of head in the direction of that truth, then I'm not sure, I'm not sure if we can say we believe it at all. I mean, if we, if we say, yes, we believe that Jesus is Lord and he's coming back one day and our lives don't look anything like that, they don't look shaped by that at all, do we truly believe that? And so to emphasize this, uh, we added the tagline to the series for the last time, what we do while we wait. Because what we do while we wait for the end to come truly matters. Now, this morning, we're going to actually do something while we wait. As you notice, there's this great table in the middle of the room, and we're going to take communion this morning. We're going to go to the bread, and we're going to take the cup. And as we do that, we are going to do that as we wait for the end of the world. It's a, it's a tangible thing we can do. And in fact... You know, um, in, the, in the kind of the last days in the book of Revelation, and you'll see it in the book of Isaiah as well, uh, Jesus, you know, will return, all of that stuff happens, and then there's this great feast that happens. There's this great, delicious feast. And I imagine it looks something like our communion table this morning. When Jesus comes back, we are going to eat, and we are going to eat well all together. Jesus is going to host some kind of end-of-the-world you know, dinner party, I guess we could say it like that. And I'm guessing, you know, for those of us who would say, you know, I'm not sure heaven, you know, is really, for me, it seems kind of boring. You must not like to eat because the Bible says we will eat and we will eat well. It will be like Thanksgiving, except dad won't have dried out the turkey good. Like it's going to be great. And so this morning, what I want to do is explore that great feast. It's a key element uh, to, to the end of the world in Scripture. And to do that, we're going to read two passages this morning. We're going to read Isaiah 25 and then a, a small portion from Revelation 19. Now, what we usually do, don't do this, what we usually do is we stand and then we'll face the center of the room for the reading of God's Word. And we do that for very good reason. We want to emphasize and we want to take the time to respect and honor something that we believe is true. The Bible is true. It tells us everything we need to know about God and our future. However, this morning we're going to do things a little differently. Um, I'm going to read the scripture this morning. And as I read, what I want you to do, if you're willing to, is just turn your heads or your bodies, depending on where you're sitting, and just stare at the table. 
And make eye contact with the table as we hear this wor- these words about this end times banquet of sorts. And I know some of us, we really like the words on the screen. We're not even going to have words on the screen this morning. We're just going to take time to look at the table and imagine what we're listening to as we look at the table. All right, guys? So we're going to do this. So listen, so go ahead and turn your heads if you'd like to. And listen to these words from Isaiah 25 and then also a, a small piece from Revelation 19. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And listen to these these short words from Revelation 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Amen. So in the Bible, there's actually a few different visions for what the end of the world will look like. And you can kind of put them together if you want to, but they're in a couple different spots in Scripture. Uh, probably the one that we're most familiar with is from the book of Revelation, right? And that's the book that's got uh, you know, pictures of beasts with these horns and all that kind of stuff and a dragon as well. Uh, the second would probably be the book of Daniel that people turn to to, to think about end times, um, to think about the end of the world. And it's also filled with um, interesting imagery like that, really stark images. And, and, and uh, Revelation and Daniel are both written in the genre of apocalyptic. They're, they're writing really colorfully to make a point about folks' lives currently at the time they were writing it, and then our lives also in the future, even today. But there's another source Um, for the end times, for the end of the world, and that would be the book of Isaiah, Um, probably a lesser known one to kind of think about the end of the world. And Isaiah talks about the end of the world very differently than uh, in the book of Revelation and in the book of Daniel. Isaiah talks about the end of the world uh, happening on on top of this giant mountain of the Lord. And that's where all of this end times, end of the world stuff is going to take place. And and I want to just read you a portion from Isaiah when he first starts talking about this end of the world event. And this is from Isaiah 2. So just, just listen to these words a second. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. See that? Isaiah's vision is 
is a little different from the other two. Isaiah's vision starts with this mountaintop experience. And mountains are really important in the Bible, and they're really important um, really in ancient times like these, where, when this was written. See, in the ancient world, uh, a mountain, or they were also called a high place, were often, often considered to be sacred ground. Like God was somehow more on this mountain place than, than perhaps anywhere else in the world. And even in the Bible, it, is, it reflects this kind of thought, right? Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Where does he receive the Ten Commandments from? Mount Sinai, right? On a mountain. And, and the story of Jesus is actually, I mean, it's bookmarked with all sorts of different mountaintop experience. Jesus, at one point, goes through his transfiguration where like uh, this crazy thing happens. He starts glowing really bright and it's shown that who he really is. He is uh, a God. He is uh, the second person of the Trinity. And, and at this place, guess where it happens? It happens, well, this event happens on a mountain. And then Jesus dies, and perhaps he doesn't die on a mountain per se, but he dies on a hill. A hilltop is where Jesus dies. And then Jesus is resurrected, and then he ascends to the Father. And wouldn't you know it, Jesus ascends to the Father where? Well, on a mountain he does. In the ancient world, if you were to like, go on a hunt for the gods, you're going to go find the gods. The first place you would look is the mountains, a mountaintop, a high place. And if you were to build a temple to your tribal god in this time, what you would do is you would walk out and look and kind of survey your land. You look around and you would look for the highest point you can in your land. And when you'd establish the highest point, that is where you would build your god's temple. That's where it would go to show that your god is higher than all of the others. And that's why this is all important to Isaiah's vision. You see, in Isaiah's vision... It's a world where God's mountain suddenly is established as far above all other mountains. His temple is taller than any other mountain in the entire world. And the point that Isaiah is trying to get at is that one day in the future, God will be known by all people through his height and stature as the one true powerful God in this universe. And in Isaiah's vision, what happens is the people see this mountain. All the peoples of the earth see this mountain. And they stream, it says, it's, they stream up this mountain and they stream into God's temple. We can call it God's house. And they spend time in God's house. All the people of the world. And they learn God's laws and they learn God's ways. And then they stream back out from God's mountain, back to their countries and kingdoms and villages and homes. And they practice what they learned. And it's this really great time. And then Isaiah goes on and says there's more because God becomes at this time the judge of the whole world. He becomes the judge between the nations, judge between all disputes, all conflicts between any people. God becomes the judge. And because God is such a good judge, well, there's peace. And peace goes from one end of the world all the way to the other end of the world. And because of this, there's no more war. There's no more need to train soldiers anymore. There's no more need to craft weapons anymore. There's, there's no more school shootings anymore. There's no more abuse anymore. There's no more abusive parents or abusive spouses anymore. It's all gone. There's no more conflict and violence anymore. It's all done. Don't we long for something? Like, don't we long for that day? I do. 
But Isaiah's vision doesn't stop there. It goes on. And our scripture reading this morning is how the vision goes on. You see, on the same mountain, this tall mountain, the tallest mountain in the world, God invites the whole world over for a dinner party of sorts. And this is a legit dinner party. It's off the chain, I think is the right phrase to use for this. It is a great one. I mean, the meat and the wine, they are so good. The meats are so good that if you were to compare like a Ruth's Chris steakhouse steak, well, that steak would look like a McDonald's hamburger patty. I mean, it would be nothing like what you'd see on this mountain. And then God, God would uncork the finest wine, aged perfectly, and it would make Napa Valley look like a boxed wine company. It would be so good. And at this great feast, the whole world will feast and commune with God, and it will be this great time in the world. And it will all be zero calorie, I'm pretty sure it says. And we're all thinking it's time for lunch, probably as well. You see, in this feast, there's actually more going on. There's more going on on the surface than simply some great feast that happens at the end of the world. I'm not saying that there's not going to be. I really think there's going to be this awesome feast where a lot of people are there and they, and they feast with God and it's going to be a great time. But there's more going on because Isaiah is trying to get at something deeper. He's pointing to something deeper about our reality of, of ourselves. And, and to really explain that, I have to tell a story. Now, when I say this, you might laugh, but please don't. Um, I played football in ninth grade. Some of you laugh. You shouldn't have done that. I played football in ninth grade. I joined the football team. I believe I was the school's worst tailback in history. I believe that's how it went down. And anyway, so I joined. And before, you know, you get under the Friday night lights and like all the fans are cheering for you and it's this great time. Before all that happens, apparently there's something you have to do beforehand. It's called practice something I didn't really comprehend at the time. And in football, if you've ever played football, uh, like right before the season begins to really prep your body to get in gear, they do this magical thing called two-a-days. Have you heard of this? Two-a-days. And then if your coach is really mean, they'll do this thing called three-a-days. And what that means is you have two full practices or three full practices in the same day. It's glorious. We all loved it. And all these happened in the beginning of August in Michigan where I grew up. And the beginning of August was the hottest time of year. Now in Michigan, if it's 90 degrees, we're thinking here, we're like, well, that's not too bad. 90 degrees in Michigan is like swimming in boiling hot water everywhere you go. It's that humid. It's really pleasant. And so we're, I'm at these two-a-days and I'm learning and uh, going through all these exercises and training drills and all this fun stuff. And then at the end of each day, what we would do is we would do these things called Green Bays. Now, Green Bays are almost as bad as the actual team Green Bay. They're terrible. Um, gr <laughs> Chuck might be in here. I'm not sure. Uh, but green, what green bays are is you stand at one end of the field, you run 100 yards, you run 100 yards back, you do that 10 times, then you run to the 90-yard line and run back. You do that nine times all the way until you get to zero. And then by the time you get to the end, you know, you're pretty much dead. And so I started running these green bays one day at the end, and I'm running, and it's a really hot day, and I'm doing fine, and then suddenly it hits me. It's like this form of dizziness and, like, dry tongue, and I realize, oh my goodness, I am really thirsty. And so I keep running, and my thirst grows and grows, and I am 
severely parched at this time. And I remember running and I'm looking off and the sprinklers are on, on the side of the field. And I remember thinking of like breaking ranks and then running to the sprinkler and shoving my face in it, deciding that's not a bad idea. So I continue running. And I run, I finally finished my, my green bays. And when they're done, you could run to the locker room and you could be done for the day. And so I run to the locker room. And in my locker, there is this lemon 32-ounce Gatorade waiting for me. Now, I hate lemon Gatorade. It's disgusting. But in that moment, I tore the, the, the cap off the Gatorade and I shoved it in my face and I drank it. And that was like probably one of the most glorious times in my life. Maybe you've experienced this. Like the heavens opened up and the angels had trumpets. It was, it was amazing. It was so, I was so thirsty in that moment. And the Gatorade was just perfect in that moment. You know, in Gatorade, they actually add sodium or salt because they expect if you're an athlete, you lose a lot of salt. And I remember tasting it and I could actually taste the salt in the Gatorade. And the Gatorade, the salt in the Gatorade tasted so good. It was exactly what I needed. It was exactly what I was craving at the time. And you see, this is what the great feast at the end of the world is going to be like. At this great feast, we will find the fulfillment to our hunger and to our thirst forever. You know, we hunger and we thirst a lot in our lives. And let me just say, I'm not talking about food and drink. We hunger and thirst a lot. You know, God created us to find our deepest fulfillment, to hunger and thirst. God created us for that. That's how it's supposed to be. And God created us to find our deepest fulfillment to that hunger and thirst in God. And in our fallen world, sin kind of came into the picture and it separated us from God and it created some distance between us and God. It broke the connection. And now our, our hunger and our thirst, well, we look for it everywhere. We're looking for God, something to fulfill our hunger and our thirst. And the result is we go around our lives hungering and thirsting for God all over the place in our lives looking for anything that will satisfy our deep hunger and our thirst. You know, it's why some of us are overworkers. Like we will work 80 hours a week and not even blink about it. We will work and we will work. We could probably work ourselves to death and that would be fine with us. We will work and work and work and we work that hard, that much, that may perhaps too much, because we are pursuing something by doing so. We're pursuing purpose or value or power or stability or safety. Whatever it is, we work that hard because we are hungering and thirsting for something. You know, it's why some of us bounce from relationship to relationship to relationship in our lives. And we just think that the next guy or girl that makes it into our lives will give us the love that we finally have been longing for our whole lives. That next person is going to be that rock that we so long for. We are hungering and thirsting 
for something. It's why some of us get so stuck on money in our lives where we check our savings account and if the number's not growing, our anxiety does, right? Because we're looking for something. We're hungering and thirsting for something. And if that number's not growing, well, I'm not sure we're getting it. And so we keep adding to the bank account again and again and again. And it doesn't quite give us the security or whatever it is we're looking for, but we keep doing it. I would argue that most of what we do in our lives is driven by our deep hunger and thirst. We pursue what we pursue in our lives in the hope that we will finally find something that fulfills us. And you see, this is why the great feast at the end of the world matters and matters a lot. This is what Isaiah is getting at when he mentions these high quality foods and wines. At the end of the world, we will come to God's house and there in God's house, we will finally find what we are looking for, fully fed, fully satisfied. And it will be so sweet and amazing and everything we had ever hoped for. We will there be fulfilled forever by God. You know, what if everything we have ever desired in our lives, deep down underneath, was actually a desire for God? What if it was? At the great feast, at the end of the world, we will be fed and we will never hunger and thirst again. Now, I want to talk about something else with this feast, too, because it's, it's amazing. So at this feast, all these people, they stream up the mountain and they eat this great meal with God, right? It's this great meal. It's not just the people that eat in this passage. I love this. Listen to this from our, from our scripture reading this morning. On this mountain, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. The sheet that covers all nations. God will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Did you see it? God eats at the table too. God eats at the table too. At the great feast, at the end of the world, God swallows up death forever. God gives us himself at the table and fulfills us. Our connection to God is restored. Everything that we need from God to be fully human is restored. And in the process, God swallows up death forever. That thing that has kept us down for so long, God swallows it up forever at this meal. It's amazing. Did you know Jesus talks about this? You know, in the Gospel of Luke, right before Jesus is arrested, Jesus says something profound. He's praying to the Father. Listen to what he says. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. What cup is Jesus referring to? My interpretation is Jesus is talking about Isaiah's cup. You see, at the cross, Jesus swallows death forever. You see that? This table in the middle of the room, you know, we wanted it to look like something like what this great banquet table, this great feast would look like at the end of the world. But this table is more than that. 
This table is a communion table. See, one of the reasons we come to the table and we, and we take communion is because at the table, we get a taste of what this great feast is going to be like. Jesus already ate at the feast. And we get to taste it. And then one day, we'll have the whole thing and we will eat all of it and we will be satisfied forever. Communion is a taste of the fullness of God that is to come. That's what communion is. It's a taste of the great feast. Let's pray. God, uh, we thank you for these vivid pictures of the end of the world. God, we thank you uh, for the feast. And God, we look forward to the day where you return and you are king of this world. You are in control fully of this world and you make it known and everybody else knows too, God. And God, we long so deeply for that peace where there's no more hurting, no more injustice, all is finally well in the world, God. And God, at the table, we are reminded of that. And God, we just pray that in our lives as we hunger and we thirst for you, God, that you fill us up, especially so at the table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.